It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, August 3rd. I'm Shelby Herbert. A crewman on the Petersburg seining boat Legacy died Tuesday morning while fishing near Point Ward, just south of Wrangell Island. The cause of death is unknown. The U.S. Coast Guard reported the incident to Wrangell Police Department and Search and Rescue at 7.13 a.m. that day. When responders arrived at the scene, they found 64-year-old Paul Kavan unresponsive. Tim Bunis is the head of Wrangell Search and Rescue. He says that other people on board the boat had been performing CPR on Kavan for roughly an hour by the time they arrived. Search and Rescue transported Kavan to the Wrangell Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead. The exact time of death is unknown. Wrangell Police and Wrangell Forest Service law enforcement also responded, according to a preliminary report by Wrangell Police Officer Damon Rohr. The Coast Guard launched a helicopter from Sitka that turned around when they were notified that Kavan had been unresponsive for an extended period of time. Next of kin have been contacted. Wrangell Police list Kavan's permanent residence as Oxnard, California. He reportedly lived in Petersburg in the past. The Cake Dog Salmon Festival returned last weekend, and nearly 300 locals turned out to celebrate. But as KFSK's Thomas Copeland reports, the event felt bittersweet as younger residents step into the shoes of a generation of cake elders. As you approach Cake's cold storage facility, you'll hear Kendall Jackson pretty quickly. Come and get your raffle tickets! And there's a bunch of prizes up for grabs. Camping chairs, $50 Costco gift cards, fishing supplies, 32-inch smart TVs, there's two of those, two 65-inch smart TVs, and also two seaplanes round-trip tickets. What do you think the best prize is? I think the round-trip tickets. It is $239 from Cake to Juno one way, so you can understand the, the cost of two round-trip tickets. What's, what's it all going towards? What's the end cause? The Cake Tribal Heritage Foundation. We help out with people that are going on medical travel. And medical travel is a big concern in Cake these days. Ferry and marine line services have become less frequent, seaplane prices have shot up, and a generation of cake elders are only getting older. Kelly Jackson is the festival organiser. She's nearly 30 and moved back here a few years ago, and she's attended her fair share of funerals since coming home. Those are the ones that I wanted to keep it alive for. We almost had to cancel this year because nobody took the job on, so I just decided to take it on, just in honor of all of them. And all the times that I felt defeated and didn't know if it was going to come together, those faces and their smiles are what pushed me. It's also what pushed Kelly to bring the festival back to Cake's cold storage facility. This event was originally a celebration for the workers once they had processed a million chum. But since the facility shuttered a decade ago, the festival hasn't been back here until now. I wanted to bring the tradition back to its roots and where it originally came from. Outside the empty warehouse, there are stalls with lemonade, deep-fried halibut, jewellery and salmon eggs. The most popular? A bright blue stall named Angie Cadake's Shack, in honour of an elder who passed this year. Inside, Nikki Jackson is swamped with kids. One demands some gumballs. We already sold out of those. You've already sold out? Yes. It's only 12.30. <laughs> yeah. By the time the afternoon races begin, the kids are pumped full of sugar. 
First up, a battle between the village's one-year-old girls. Go, go. Okay, runner one and two are off. Run, 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 run. Number two is taking a clear run for the line. She's nearly across. Oh, and she stopped. She stopped three quarters and turned around. She's running the other way. Oh, runner one is taking a move of it now. Runner one might make it. She's about to cross the line. Oh, and she stopped. Oh, and it was a draw. After all that, the children's stomachs are rumbling again. Luckily, Cake is pretty serious about its eating competitions too. Kendall Jackson handles the legal paperwork. 16 and under, you need a waiver for water events, pie eating contest, and hot dog eating contest. With all the pie and hot dogs gobbled up, one of just a handful of ferry arrivals this month has landed. Cake's Cake Kwan dancers welcome the visitors as they arrive in. A group of about 20 perform two songs, announced by elder Ellie Jackson. The first song we did was from the Raven Clan, which is called Sai Gift, it's a love song. And the second, the eagle song, was the kill whale migration song called Yayan Nguyen. Watching the dancers from a nearby car is Ruth Demert, one of Cake's few remaining fluent Tlingit speakers. She turns 86 this year. Oh, we've lost quite a few elders the past three years. So many that, you know, it's hard to speak the language anymore because there's so many of them gone. What would your message be to the next generation of folks in this town? Just keep it up. Keep our language strong. Don't give up. We wish them luck. As the Kihkwan dancers finish up, another festival tradition begins. The fish filleting contest. Jules Jackson explains the rules as she sharpens her knife. No fins, no ribs, no head. I usually start from the head, you know, around the collar, straight down, the fins and everything come out, and the guts. Are you a champion at this? Two or three years, yeah. Two or three year champion? Picking my dad's place. He was a champion before. If you want to freshen up after all the fish, blood, guts and gore, maybe join the kids as they rush to the dock for the water games. <laughs> Watching the children leap into the water as the sun goes down, festival organizer Kelly Jackson has some company, one of Cake's newest residents. This is my son Casanova. He's going to be turning two in September. I don't know if you notice while you're here, Thomas, but everybody waves. And my little boy was seven months here, and he got down that cake wave. See so you wave. Can you wave for me, Casanova? Say bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's bye from Casanova, and it's bye from me. In Cake, I'm Thomas Copeland. A seafood donation program that began in Sitka during the pandemic is still growing. Now called the Seafood Distribution Network, the program is supplying sockeye to families on the Yukon and Chignik rivers, whose traditional salmon runs have crashed. Robert Woolsey reports. The market shift in seafood during the COVID pandemic created a problem for the industry, Unlike many other sectors, the supply, the fish, was still there. How to connect those fish with people when traditional markets vanished. For Linda Benkin, director of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, it was about connecting the dots. So we worked with the local processors here to figure out what fish was stranded by markets being closed, by restaurants being closed, the supply chain disruptions, raised money, bought fish from fishermen that was sort of stranded product, and then started distributing it to people in town that told us they were in need. So it was really, you let us know if you need seafood, we'll provide it. And that's how Alpha's seafood donation program got started in 2020. 
basically a processor-to-doorstep delivery service for people who were having trouble getting by. It didn't take long for word about the program to get out. And then we started hearing from people outside Sitka that there was need and people really wanted seafood. So we did a distribution with Sea Alaska, for example, that reached every community in southeast Alaska. Um, and we did distributions in the lower 48 to tribes along the Columbia River, to Anchorage military families, to communities in western Alaska. So sort of where we heard there was need, we found partners to work with to make that happen. Benkin credits Sitka-based processors, seafood producers co-op, Sitka Sound Seafoods, and Northline Seafoods, along with tribes and tribal organizations across the state, for helping make the connections that kept the program going. On paper, it sounds like an impossible undertaking, delivering 645,000 seafood meals across the Pacific Northwest and Alaska, but Benkin says it conformed to basic Alaskan values. Alaska is a big state, but we're also a small state, and the communities really care about other communities. We have a lot of relatives in different parts of the state and that there is clear reason for us to share between those areas that have a lot and those areas of scarcity, but the infrastructure isn't really there. So that's what we've been working on developing, is that infrastructure in Alaska so Alaskans can benefit from Alaska's fish. A grant from the Alaska Community Foundation got the seafood donation program rolling. A regional food systems grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture helped ramp it up. But just the energy of regular Alaskans is helping fuel things now. In a pilot project in Dillingham this June, Alpha organized a drive to collect subsistence sockeye for communities affected by the crash in Chinook and Chumstocks. Natalie Sattler is the program manager for Alpha. We worked with a lot of community members and locals in Dillingham in the Bristol Bay area um, to help us collect seafood. And it was all um, subsistence donations. And within one week, we were able to collect 5,000 pounds of sockeye. And folks were just, we, they rallied support. They went down to their set net sites and were just kids, families, everyone just, you know, picking fish um, and donating it and getting it ready to um, ship out. This year, the sockeye will be going to communities on the Yukon and Chignik rivers. And besides providing food, Benkin says the fish are intended to keep food traditions alive. What we've heard from people in these communities that aren't able to harvest fish themselves right now because of scarcity um, is that they really wanted round fish because being able to process that fish as a family is and as a community is really culturally important. The pandemic and the salmon crash have been a one-two punch for many communities in western Alaska. In a news release, Representative Mary Peltola said programs like Alpha's Seafood Distribution Network were a critical part of the rebound. Low salmon abundance is an issue that needs to be addressed at every level, from the federal government down to individual communities, and efforts like this are an important piece of that larger goal, Peltola said. Reporting in Sitka with help from Brooke Schaefer, I'm Robert Woolsey. Congresswoman Mary Paltola is ramping up fundraising for her 2024 re-election campaign. Nationally, the Alaska seat is among the top targets for a Republican takeover, and contributions already suggest this will be a high-profile race. Alaska Public Media's Liz Bruskin reports on the state of fundraising for an election that's still more than a year away. 
Peltola's latest campaign finance report shows she raised nearly $600,000 over three months. It was a substantial boost from the report covering the first quarter of the year, in which the campaign spent more than it raised. Her campaign manager, Anton McParlin, says they started the year with a bit of a breather. Feeling like Alaskans deserved some time away from campaigning generally. Um, but we're in full throttle for quarter two. A candidate's quarterly campaign finance reports provide insight into the race, and Peltola's already suggests that this campaign will draw a lot of money and attention from outside the state. This will be one of the most competitive races in the country. Ben Peterson is a spokesman for the National Republican Congressional Committee working to keep the House in Republican hands. He says Peltola is vulnerable because she's a Democrat from a state that voted heavily for Donald Trump in the last election, and both parties are gearing up to fight for the seat. So far, one Republican is in the race, Chugiak businessman Nick Begich, who came in third in last year's U.S. House race. Begich says it's telling that Peltola raised a lot of money this year from political action committees. Nearly $300,000 only six months in from political action committees and special interests. I think that speaks volumes about where she's at in D.C. Peltola's PAC money comes from a variety of groups, from unions to airlines and defense contractors. ExxonMobil's PAC gave her $1,000. So did a PAC affiliated with the Environmental Defense Fund. A PAC dedicated to helping mothers, called Moms Fed Up, gave her twice that. Begich points out that a lot of the PAC money comes from liberal groups, including committees associated with Democratic leaders like Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Pelosi. I really think that kind of demonstrates some of the the more left-leaning support that she's got because she's, quite frankly, uh, sided with many of the most left uh, representatives in the House. It's true that Peltola votes in line with the Democratic position most of the time, but she's voted against her party 47 times this year, according to a vote database maintained by ProPublica. That means Peltola is one of the Democrats who most frequently crosses the aisle to vote. McParlin, Peltola's campaign manager, says the wide range of PACs shows donors are tired of extreme partisanship and appreciate her moderate approach. Most of Peltola's total came from individual donors, while Alaskans gave more than residents of any other single state in-state contributions amount to only about a quarter of the total. McParlin says that's likely to continue, a reflection, he says, of Alaska's relatively small population compared to the rest of the country. Begich's quarterly report shows no fundraising yet this year. Last year, he loaned his campaign $650,000 and after the election withdrew about a third of that from his campaign account to repay himself. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Liz Ruskin. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.